1: Once upon a time I was depressed, so I decided to become a philosopher. I was in my early 20s and what I really wanted to be was a novelist. I'd spent a couple of years very broke in London, doing various gig economy jobs and lugging my record collection in and out of a series of shared houses. During this time, I'd written 100,000 words of cutting-edge experimental fiction, which no one wanted to publish or even read. I needed something radical to happen. I needed a future. My solution was to enrol in a master's programme at Warwick University, just outside the English city of Coventry. My plan was... Well, I don't really remember what my plan was exactly. Read some books. Sort out my head.
0: On the 14th November, 1940, it became a city of destruction.
1: The thing you need to know about Coventry is that the way it looks owes a lot to the Nazi Luftwaffe. They bombed it more or less flat in World War II.
0: The little town that grew into a famous place of guilds and crafts and medieval ceremony, into a rich trade town... Into a great centre of industry, into a burned, bombed city.
1: Coventry was reimagined by city planners.
0: It didn't die.
1: Who wanted a rational, modernist machine for living, but ended up with the city centre dominated by an elevated concrete ring road jammed with cars. Coventry had taken an economic battering during the Thatcher years. You get what I'm saying, it was not a glamorous place. The most famous cultural product of Coventry was the band, The Specials, who wrote a song about it called Ghost Town.
2: This town
3: is
1: My record collection and I moved to this ghost town in 1993. I was innocent enough to believe that philosophy would be a noble pursuit. I pictured a group of serious people trying to find the truth, possibly wearing robes. What I found instead was a state of war. And soon, I was in the trenches with the rest of them. This is Into the Zone, a podcast about opposites and how borders are never as clear as we think. I'm Hari Kunzru. This episode is about the present and the future. It's about minds and bodies. It's about biology and machines. It's about a time long, long ago when we were cyber. In my new Coventry home, I found bitter personal rivalries and dreams of well-paid jobs on the other side of the Atlantic. And there was a culture war, at least as bitter as the red and blue of the Trump era. On one side were the analytic philosophers, who felt that thinking ought to be rigorous and logical. To them, the main job of philosophy was to distinguish between truth and falsehood. They wrote books with a lot of quasi-mathematical notation and thought of themselves as logical traffic cops, saying which concepts could go ahead and which had to stop at the red lights. On the other side were the followers of Jacques Derrida, French god of deconstruction. The deconstructionists had come over long years in the university bar to suspect that the only reality was in the words of the philosophy books they read. There was nothing outside the text. These philosophers were poetic and melancholy. As far as I could see, their ultimate aim in life was to write essays that sounded as if they'd been badly translated out of French. Both groups of philosophers were, in their own ways, unutterably tedious. Luckily for me, there was a third group in the department. They liked a lot of the same things I did, including things that weren't philosophy at all. Things such as science fiction movies featuring people turning into machines, fractal patterns, techno music, mind-altering drugs, experimental fiction, and above all, a new thing called the internet. When I arrived at Warwick, there were only about 130 websites. Have a think about that. Today, there are around 1.6 billion. I got online using a modem that made a sound like a sick transistor radio. After this thing spent a while strangling itself, I might click a link. Then I could usually go and make a cup of tea while it loaded. But I didn't care. The internet was amazing. It connected me to a whole new world of subcultural weirdness. Instantly, I could talk to witches and UFO cultists and make out with people pretending to be unicorns in the text based hot tub of a multi user domain. It was way better than Coventry. This was cyberspace. That's what we called it. The word seems quaint now, conjuring up graphics of kids literally surfing the pixelated waves on PC keyboards. Mostly, cyberspace existed in our dreams. And those dreams were largely formed by the writer William Gibson.
4: I had that feeling of, you know, that post-geographical feeling.
1: This is him in a documentary made in 2000 called No Maps for These Territories.
4: I think we've been growing a sort of prosthetic extended nervous system for the last 100 years or so, and it's really starting to take.
1: William Gibson's 1984 book Neuromancer has the famous opening line, the sky above the port was the colour of television tuned to a dead channel. It was more than a science fiction novel. It felt uncanny, like a prophecy of the future. It's the story of a hacker travelling through the Matrix, a global internet that manifests as a kind of virtual reality. Somewhere in the Matrix, a sophisticated AI has become conscious. There's a lot of flying through imaginary cityscapes of neon and matte black towers. Neuromancer posed questions that were very interesting to me, about how humans were becoming connected to machines, how we were linking ourselves together into networks, how machines were becoming intelligent and bodies were melting into data. Many of the grad students in my philosophy department were obsessed with those same questions. And they did what grad students everywhere do. They organised a conference to talk about it. They called it Virtual Futures.
4: All of a sudden the body finds itself in an immense extraterrestrial space, the body
1: cope. The title, Virtual Futures, referred to William Gibson's short story, The Gernsback Continuum. The Gernsback Continuum is about an architectural photographer who's hired to take pictures of futuristic 1930s buildings. Think chrome and fins and curving concrete. As he's shooting pictures of these decaying old buildings, he starts to see things, to hallucinate people from the future. Not his own future but the future that people imagined when those buildings were new, one with ray guns and flying cars and food pills. We imagine futures that never come to pass, imaginary futures that stay as kind of ghosts. They're not our actual future, they are virtual futures. A quarter century later, I'm living in a future that contains some of the things I imagined and plenty more I didn't. The future we imagined back in the 1990s now seems unbelievably far away. Recently, I was going through some old stuff and found one of the flyers for the Virtual Futures conferences. It's hard to say what's going on exactly because it's really badly photocopied, but I think there's some kind of hybrid human-insect-machine sex happening. The description just says, philosophical conference. Papers have titles like, Meltdown, Prelude to Immersion, Cyberpocalypse Now, and if you weren't getting the message, Apocalyptic Cybernetics. The virtual futures conferences, eventually there were three and I went to them all, connected me to people who are still some of my best friends. They changed my life and it wasn't just me.
5: I was very aware in medicine that the body was being increasingly observed through machines and that you could see deeper beneath the skin than ever before. And actually it was creating a crisis.
1: Rachel Armstrong was a discontented junior doctor.
5: That the people that we saw in the ward were being abstracted into data. Each space in the room was based on the body.
1: Rachel thought she was going to a computer conference. She hoped it would help her be a better doctor.
5: I got way more than I bargained for. To bring that disembodied space back to the body. That was the first time I'd come across those extreme ideas. And the most incredible performances, a woman with blue hair, from underneath the table, with this cyber babble and techno music. It was, it was speaking to me, but I, I didn't know what it was. I think the best way I would describe it was punk.
1: There's a saying about a Sex Pistols gig in Manchester in 1976 that everyone who was there started a band. That's how it was with Virtual Futures. People who were there started art collectives and record labels and magazines. They became architects, musicians and filmmakers but at the time it seemed marginal and, if I'm honest, also a bit ridiculous. But then that feeling of ridiculousness is sometimes how you feel in the presence of something genuinely new. The audacity was, in a way, the best thing about it.
5: I mean, this was a really industrial carpet setting with kind of cheap furniture and very rudimentary technologies, bizarrely.
1: There we were, on a windswept university campus at the edge of an unfashionable town in a country known for the past, not the future. Virtual futures was a way of refusing all that, of claiming the future. And the most viscerally futuristic thing in my life was music. That's Hyperon Experience, two guys from the county of Suffolk who made underground dance music. We called this kind of music hardcore or jungle. It was a style that came out of the rave scene. It was DIY music made in bedrooms with cheap equipment. You can hear that it's built around drum breaks from old funk records. jungle, the brakes are sped up beyond the capabilities of any human drummer. Acceleration was the key to everything. The world seemed to be getting faster, the future rushing towards us. And this music sounded like it was breaking free of human limits. It was an example of the thing we thought we saw all around us that the human present was heading towards something totally new, a time when human beings maybe wouldn't even exist anymore. The post-human. That's a word like cyberspace or the phrase information superhighway that seems very 90s now, along with the excessive quoting of William Gibson's writing.
4: Fragments of music from countless speakers. The smells of free monomers. patties of frying pearls.
1: I remember one presentation at Virtual Futures that took place in a darkened room where two young men in black fatigues pointed a strobe light at the audience, set very slow. So we were basically blinded about once a second by a super bright light while they played very fast industrial music and shouted at us about the imminent dissolution of our bodies. The thing that made it hilarious was that we were all sitting down on uncomfortable plastic chairs in a lecture hall.
6: Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank, NA Member, FDIC, Copyright 2024. JPMorgan Chase & Co.
2: Just go to musora.com, M U S O R A.com, to start a new musical journey today.
1: Headlining Virtual Futures that first year was a character who looked like he'd stepped out of Neuromancer. He too was dressed all in black black leather jacket, dark glasses, black hair tied in a ponytail. His name was Manuel DeLando. Manuel is a philosopher, but exactly the kind of philosopher we loved. An outsider. A maverick. A philosopher who connects philosophy to loads of other cool stuff in chemistry and history and social theory. Recently, I tracked him down and I got to talk to him at his home in Manhattan. He lives alone, in an apartment in a pre war building near Grand Central Station. His place is like him, very focused. Kind of monkish
7: i got my films into the whitney biennial and so on so everything was going just fine until i realized that filmmakers are the proletariat of the art world in new york and i hated that
1: manuel grew up in mexico in the late 70s and 80s he was part of the legendary new york downtown scene he made Super 8 films that combined street footage with hand-drawn special effects and found images from porn and war movies. With his friend Joe Coleman, he staged some abrasive and confrontational performances. For Manuel, going too far wasn't far enough. When the highbrow theoretical publisher Semiotex brought the famous French philosopher Gilles Deleuze to town, They invited Manuel and Joe to perform something radical, in air quotes, something that would feel transgressive. Manuel and Joe decided to visit the seven plagues of Egypt on the audience.
7: And we attacked it with everything we had. I mean, we had a freshly decapitated cow's head and a pig's head. We had live animals of all the different plagues, snakes, rats, crickets, to stand for locusts and uh, toads joe had his gear for exploding and uh, it, and it just was just complete chaos
1: yeah exploding one of joe coleman's party tricks was to attach explosive to himself and set them off if you want you can find a video on the internet of one of joe coleman's performances it's kind of messed up he's wearing a suit with what looks to me like a sheep's head hung around his neck He seems like he's playing a character, yelling at the audience like a preacher. He bites the heads off some live mice, then takes a cigarette lighter to a fuse sticking out of the front of his shirt.
4: Okay, brothers and sisters. Time for it.
1: People are screaming, scrambling for the exits. By the time I met Manuel De at Virtual Futures in 1994, he'd stopped blowing things up with Joe Coleman and started writing books. Philosophy books are supposed to have abstract titles, preferably connecting two important words like being and time or reasons and persons. Manuel's book was called War in the Age of Intelligent Machines. In it, he imagined a robot historian looking back at the evolution of his species. He told a science fiction story about machines using humans as their reproductive organs until they could develop the capability to copy themselves. It was a way to talk about his idea of non-organic life and to approach many technical problems in philosophy. But importantly, it was also cool. It was a vision of the future that spoke to us directly. As we danced to jungle and experimented with connecting ourselves together via the internet, we felt as if we were half-machine already, that we were cyborgs, cybernetic organisms. Speaking with Manuel plunges me right back to all the things that entranced us about his work. He combines a love of chaos with a ruthlessly analytical mind.
7: One of the first things that I did when I came to New York was to trip in acid multiple times. I mean, we're talking about 200 times, probably in about four years. At the same time, studying analytical philosophy. And that became even more so when I bought my first computer in 1980 huge industrial computer. Once you get into computers, once you start programming computers, you understand analytical philosophy much more because all computer languages are basically derived from the logic systems that Bertrand Russell and Frege and so on created. So you're programming and you're really dealing with the stuff these guys are dealing with. So I was into analytical philosophy, but ACID, which I continue to take and I continue to take to this day four times a year, Artificial intelligence and robotics, although that is one way of crossing the the threshold, you know, giving metal, so to speak, uh, consciousness. I also had in mind things like the the atmosphere of planet Earth. In the atmosphere of planet Earth, the seas and the rivers plus the atmosphere. You have all kinds of creatures that emerge spontaneously. Some of them we name hurricanes because they last long enough and they have enough energy to cause us damage that we need to name them. Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Bob, Hurricane Nancy. But then there are thunderstorms. Thunderstorms are incredible sculptures, incredible machines made out of clouds with thunder and lightning inside, and they move. And at any one point in time, there's seven or eight thunderstorms on on the planet. there's always some of them dancing around. They give birth, literally, to tornadoes. When I think of a thunderstorm filled with energy and lightning and giving birth, to tornadoes, it's very hard for me not to think about it as a kind of product of life. Life. Self-organization, even in dead matter. When you begin to realize that in addition to DNA and and proteins that these things don't have, that we share those processes of self-organization with them and that life would have never been able to take off in this planet had it not been for those previously existing processes of self-organization, you begin to question the difference between the The living and the non-living.
1: I mean, the really kind of trippy thing about War in the Age of Intelligent Machines is asking the question about what what does happen when not just any old machines, but machines of war develop a kind of autonomy. I mean, we're familiar with that in popular culture. We think of Terminator. We think of the war of the machines against the people. It gets, it gets into a very apocalyptic way of thinking very quickly. Why did you want to focus on war?
7: Well... Because uh, as a materialist, as someone who really took seriously the idea that there's material culture in addition to symbolic culture, the material culture of blacksmiths, carpenters, masons, electricians, and so on, who philosophers never think about. Then I began to think, well, who creates those weapons of war? And then the battlefield itself is a social space because chimpanzees don't fight wars. They raid each other's tribes and communities, but they don't really fight war. So war is a exclusively social and human phenomenon. Yes, beliefs and symbolic ideas about God and about patriotism do make you fight. But once you enter the battlefield and you begin confronting those flying metallic projectiles and shockwaves, explosion, fire, and bodies maimed and, and killed and destroyed, it is all material. It is the, the, perhaps the most material space, the, the one in which you cannot possibly deny that there's a world that exists independently of our mind because it's causally affecting you.
1: Manuel de mind is its own planet. He amazes me as much now as he did when I first encountered him a quarter century ago. Many philosophers seem to think of the world outside the mind as almost impossibly far away, something for someone else to deal with. But that's not Manuel.
7: I don't believe that our senses give us access to the world as it is. Psychophysicists have shown for a long time, we see only part of the the electromagnetic spectrum, the visible part. We hear only part of the audio spectrum. If something is too fast, like a bullet striking you in the head, we cannot really see the bullet. Something is too slow, like a rat decomposing. We don't see that. We only see windows into the world. On the other hand, because we intervene in the world to to change it by technology, by doing experiments on an everyday life, by cooking and and, and changing substances in our kitchen. We know a lot more than our senses reveal because we know our capacities to affect the world and the capacities of the world to affect
0: us.
1: When Manuel de came to our conference in Warwick, it was his first lecture in Europe and he met his first cyborg, Stellark.
7: Right off the, the plane, when I arrived my, my, at my hotel, there was a Stellark waiting for his room. And so I got to talk to Stellark right away, uh, which blew my mind. I mean, he, of the, all the post-human ones, he was the only one who was actually doing something about it.
4: Um, my body's connected to a, a, a muscle stimulator system with a touch screen interface.
7: You know, attaching bizarre third arms, you know, robotic third arms, and swallowing cameras so that they would go all the way to his stomach, uh, doing all kinds of dangerous things in which the materiality of your body was at stake.
1: Stellark is an Australian artist who started out doing the kind of 70s performance art that involved enduring a lot of pain. He'd have hooks put through his skin and have himself suspended naked in a variety of positions and scenic locations. Later, he became interested in modifying his body with technology. He was up for anything. Swallowing things, attaching things, implanting them. He was a very cheery fellow. Everyone wanted to buy him drinks.
4: It also reminds me of of an interesting uh, story when I first made the film of the inside of the left and right bronchi of the lungs, and I realised that the trachea was a wind tunnel. You know, you breathed air up and down the trachea, and it was a wind tunnel. So I thought, at that time, we had the oil... You know, the oil crisis? (laughs) And the concern about energy conservation. And I thought, well, if I could implant a little propeller device in the trachea... And through my regular breathing... I
1: could, in fact, generate some elect- electricity. Like the rest of us laughing along, Manuel De admired Stellark's experiments on himself. But he didn't think much of most of the philosophers he met at Virtual Futures. When I asked him about academics, I triggered one of his trademark epic rants.
7: Think about this. 1948 was the beginning of the baby boom, roughly. Let's assume that it lasted 10 years, all the way to 1958. Millions of little babies were produced at the same time. Now, let's assume that you get tenure when you're 30 years old. Let's assume that. So that's 1978. All those thousands or millions of babies got tenure, or many of those got tenure, simultaneously in 1978, between 1970 and 1986. A massive amount of human flesh entrenched in universities, right? And between 1970 and 1986 was the peak of the fashion of repeating French philosophy without knowing anything that you know. And so that means that all those fakers and all those bluffers got tenure, simply for demographic reasons. And we won't get rid of them until they die because they literally are entrenched in every university that I go to. So I already knew that when I went to work, And so I went there with it, the spirit of being very forgiving. But I couldn't really keep it up. Eventually, I began exploding.
1: Not literally exploding, I should say. Manuel is speaking metaphorically
7: here. And you probably didn't see that, hopefully. Because when I explode and start saying nasty things to bluffers and fakers, I, I, I look nasty and I look mean. But nevertheless, I can't help myself.
1: I didn't notice any behind-the-scenes confrontations between Manuel and this wall of human flesh. No, I was too busy marveling at the most unforgettable performer at the conference.
3: Je voudrais me présenter. Je suis Orlan.
1: Her name was, and is, Orlan.
3: Et mon nom s'écrit en majuscule. parce que je ne veux pas qu'on me fasse rentrer dans la ligne.
6: a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank, NA Member, FDIC, Copyright 2024. JPMorgan Chase & Co.
2: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics, and the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with five G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com/slash-now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano
1: Early 2020, I'm in an artist's studio in Paris. It's a light industrial space cluttered with amazing objects, sculptures, light boxes, photographs. Several fashionably dressed assistants are hard at work while the artist herself is on the phone. Orlan is a startling, glamorous figure. A woman in her early 70s with vertical hair, half white and half black and a pair of architectural glasses. And horns, not massive devil horns, just tasteful bumps implanted under the skin on either side of her forehead. At Virtual Futures back in the mid nineties, Orlan gave what was probably the most scandalous presentation of all, the one that people remembered. All I knew about her was that she was a French artist who spelled her name in all caps. Like her one-named counterpart, Stellark, or used her body to make her art. You'll need some context for what comes next. There was a strong feminist strand at virtual futures.
4: Um, and I'm particularly concerned with uh, the way
6: that the,
1: the... What are the virtual futures of gender and sexuality? Asked one panel.
6: Fantasy is reality and therefore...
1: Can patriarchy survive the emergence of cyberspace?
5: You can't have a rape online.
1: Well, obviously, the answer to that one is a resounding yes. There was an element of weird naughtiness to it all. One day at Virtual Futures, I walked into a session on cyberfeminism and was surprised to see someone I'd last known as a very serious feminist theorist. Now, here she was, kneeling on stage, wearing a silver dress and eight-hole Doc Martin boots, submissively tying and untying the ribbons on a pair of ballet shoes on the feet of an Australian artist, giving a speech. ...on patriarchal databanks.
4: Um, sense of awareness about its own relationship to these movements.
1: None of this, you understand, happened at normal philosophy conferences. And certainly normal philosophy conferences didn't have Orlan. They'd scheduled Orlan's talk for 10am on Sunday. A lot of people, myself included, had been up late the night before, stumbling around to ear-splittingly loud jungle in the cavernous and depressing Warwick Students' Union. I was not in good shape. And looking around, I saw I wasn't the only one. Orlan was a strange spectral figure who spoke no English. Through an interpreter, she explained that she had recently done a series of performances involving plastic surgery. I wasn't sure i had heard right. She pressed play on a video. Two minutes later... The lecture hall was a scene of carnage. The video all-unplayed was disturbing, to say the least. Wearing a black pleated dress, she sits in an operating theatre, her face dotted with purplish marker. She's surrounded by various objects that you wouldn't normally find in a medical setting. Vases of flowers, clocks showing the time in various cities, people who might be nurses or assistants in flamboyant costumes. Then, a masked surgeon begins to cut her face open. She isn't under general anaesthetic. She's talking, reciting poetry to the camera. As the surgeon lifts part of her face off, she's still talking. The audience at Warwick quickly fell to pieces. At least one person fainted. Another ran for the door, holding his hands over his mouth to keep from throwing up. Several more walked out. I stayed to the end of Olland's ordeal, but there were parts I couldn't watch, and I was very glad I hadn't eaten a heavy breakfast. Later, after the shock had worn off, I was able to understand something of what I'd just witnessed. Instead of having surgery to make herself beautiful, Orlan made the surgery part of a performance where she asked what beauty means. In the surgery I watched, she had part of a procedure that's used for facelifts. In another surgery, she had her horns inserted. In another, she had liposuction. In all of this, Orlan was the director, the controller, awake and in charge of things, not a passive victim on an operating table suffering to look better for men. Orlan was an outsider, Someone who'd made herself look scary, even monstrous. Someone who was prepared to do things others wouldn't dare.
3: Bonsoir. Oh, bonsoir. Bienvenue. Merci. Welcome. merci. Thank bonsoir. you.
1: 25 years later, at Orlan's studio in Paris, I was able to ask her about those plastic surgery performances. C'est pas question, donc c'est pas question de. de uh de passer le normal de, de d'échapper le corps ou de, d'échapper la, l'identité humaine. C'est
3: S'il y a ça aussi puisque c'était euh une bagarre contre l'inné parce que en considérant que le visage que j'ai ou le corps que j'ai c'est un masque comme un autre et
8: it was a fight against the innate. The face I have is a mask like any other. And it's a mask that I didn't want. I didn't decide the the color of my eyes, the length of my nose, of my mouth well. So this was an attempt to get out of the frame. It was an attempt to move the bars of the cage. Anatomy is no longer destiny.
1: Back in grad school, I'd found Orlan spooky and intimidating. She's still very grand in the way that famous older artists can be grand, but she's good fun. I bring up a project she had back then to change her nose. She wanted to have a monstrously large nose attached to her face, the largest that it could physically support. No surgeon would do it for ethical reasons, which in itself is kind of interesting because plastic surgeons do some pretty strange stuff without getting hung up on ethics. At l'époque de, de la conférence de Warwick, um, vous avez, je crois que vous avez eu un projet de transformer votre nez. Orlan arches an eyebrow and points out that I have kind of a large nose myself, which is true. I think she's flirting. And then there's the issue of her
3: horns. I
8: wanted to do something that wasn't supposed to happen, to bring beauty. If I'm described as a woman who has two bumps on her temples, you can consider that I'm absolutely horrible, monstrous, etc. But if I'm seen, it can change. It doesn't always change, but sometimes it can change. Because these horrible bumps have become organs of seduction like any other.
1: Since the days of her surgeries, Orlan has worked with her body in different ways. She's made robots. She's made work from her vaginal flora. She's used her image in every conceivable way. With her black and white hair, she's like a warmer, more humorous Cruella de Ville. Her cartoonish appearance is part of her work.
3: Oui, aussi, en plus, oui. Et donc, j'ai toujours essayé quand d'être en éveil.
8: I always try to be alert. And when I see, when I feel something, whether it's technological, but also a social movement, a social phenomenon, I try to question it, to see what I can do with it, in which direction I can twist it.
1: So Orlan's doing well. I've just about recovered. But what happened to the other attendees of Virtual Futures? like Rachel Armstrong, the young doctor who came to the conference hoping to learn about computers. At Virtual Futures she had her mind blown. She began thinking in wild theoretical ways about how organisation happens in living systems, how life gets built.
5: And that was where I started my journey. And I came up with something called the Cytoplasmic Manifesto. I was uh, really trying to look at the organizing matrices before DNA apparently took over and look at the enabling conditions in which material organization could be possible.
1: Someone Rachel met at Virtual Futures said that with her interest in the building blocks of life, she ought to come and teach at his architecture school. And that's what she did. Today, she's a professor of experimental architecture at the University of Newcastle.
5: So I I think the notion of future is still up for grabs. And I think that the virtual futures, um, you know, kind of made us think about the pieces that we'd been presented with.
1: As for the pieces of my future, I got my degree and I went back to London, my head full of ideas about art and technology and politics. I became part of an editorial collective, making a magazine and putting on events and started getting paid writing gigs. For several years, I supported myself by writing journalism, mostly about technology and music. But all the time I was writing fiction, publishing stories wherever I could. Eventually I sold a novel and was on the road towards the ultimate goal of having my own podcast. The future in 2020 has changed. It's not the future of infinite invention that we imagined in the 1990s. Manuel Delander is still single-mindedly plowing the philosophical furrow he began all those years ago. Orlan is more Orlan than ever. At Orlan's studio, a distinguished visitor has arrived, one of the members of France's Académie des Beaux-Arts. Orlan has been considered for membership a huge honor. The Academy has only 63 seats. Someone usually has to die before a new member can be admitted. It represents the cultural establishment of France. Orlan, the outsider, is on the verge of becoming the ultimate insider. (laughs) Other people from the virtual futures days are making art, (laughs) writing books, I could have made another five episodes just about their work. But in 2020, one thing unites us. We're all still imagining futures that may never come to pass, at least not exactly in the way we think. But still, we imagine them. Still, we dream. Experiments, weird artists, weirder philosophers. They gave us a roadmap for the odd actual future to come, but they couldn't prepare us for everything.
3: My favorite definition of a virus comes from um, this guy named Peter Medawar, uh, who's a mid-20th century biologist. And he said that a virus is a piece of bad news wrapped up in protein.
1: (laughs) On next week's season finale of Into the Zone... Time capsules, tardigrades, and perhaps the most important question of all, what is life and what is death? And does that distinction even matter? Into the Zone is produced by Ryder Alsop and Hunter Braithwaite. Our editor is Julia Barton. Mila Bell is our executive producer. Martin Gonzalez is our engineer. Music for this episode composed by Izzy Ocampo, also known as Student. Our theme song is composed by Sarah K. Pedinotti, also known as Lip Talk. Special thanks to Jacob Weisberg, Heather Fain, John Schnaz, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Eric Sandler, Emily Rostick, and Maggie Taylor. Into the Zone is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider letting others know. The best way to do this is by rating us on Apple Podcasts. You could even write a review. And for a Spotify playlist of songs that inspired this episode, you can find me on Twitter at, at Harikunzru. I'm nasty
7: and I look mean, but nevertheless, I can't help myself.
1: Harikunzru. See you next time.